Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Turn to Malachi chapter 4. I'll be reading the the whole chapter, the six verses, but we'll be focused on verses 5 and 6. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb before all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray as we study this passage, Father, as as I preach your word, that you would supply us with your Holy Spirit, that we would have a spiritual understanding. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand, and in understanding that we would meditate upon this, and in meditating upon this good word, that we would obey it. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the verses before us are very dense, very thick, very uh, heavy. Uh, at least in my mind they are, not only are these the last verses, the last word in in the order of the books, at least of our Old Testaments, though you have to remember that Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther were all written after Malachi and really describe events that were either concurrent or after Malachi. But... um, But these words at the ends of our Old Testaments, are fulfilled in the New Testament and mentioned extensively. Um, recently, you, you heard two sermons from me uh, regarding John the Baptist. That wasn't, um, that wasn't just coincidence. That was preparing for these and this sermon. He, John the Baptist, as you know, is the one predicted here in verse 5 and 6 because, because of those sermons... I'm not going to elaborate on on verse 5, other than to say John the Baptist came as a forerunner of the Lord. And so the great and terrible day of the Lord mentioned here is not the final judgment, but the coming of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. John the Baptist called Israel to what? He called them to repentance, right? Just as Elijah had done to an apostate and Baal worshiping Israel, right? And so in the same manner, John the Baptist comes as what Elijah had done previously. The he of verse 6, who does it refer to? John the Baptist or the one he announced, the Son of God. Um, here's what we read in the very beginning of Luke's gospel. 
regarding John the Baptist. At the end of this passage, the two last verses from Malachi are quoted. It says this in Luke 1.5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Zacharias, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So you see, these verses speak of John the Baptist being the one used by the Lord to, to one, turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He, he also, too, would go as a forerunner before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah, Three, he would turn the hearts of the people to repentance so as to make um, ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then also, he would turn the hearts of the, the fathers back to their children. So this was the task of this obscure and manly John. Um, in, his, in his recent book on fatherhood, My Father in the Faith, Tim Bailey writes this. He says, Our Heavenly Father is the only one who can restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. It is Jesus Christ who gives us this restoration. It is not optional. True Christianity, hear this, true Christianity always restores the bond of love between fathers and children. Now there are some of you who, having been bitten by the bug of modern feminist notions, are already saying, well, what about mothers? What about mothers? Are we mothers chopped liver? Right, well, who said that you were? Right, did this passage? No, the passage didn't. Can we please be able to address something without uh, addressing every, you know, to to have the, the main truth Uh, Beaten down by a thousand exceptions, right? That's the way we argue today. But, 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 but. I don't know how many times I've addressed fathers and masculinity only to have people tell me that I hate women. (laughs) 
I've preached to the men, I've preached on masculinity, I've preached on fatherhood, and the response I'll get is, why do you hate women so much? Um, I mean, do I have to preach like a PCA pastor and qualify every statement I make to the point of meaninglessness? Our passage mentions fathers and children. Fathers, right? It does not mention mothers and children. The principle is this. When a people go astray, follow idols, reject God, repentance will be marked by fathers leading and turning their households back to God. As was said of Abraham, so will be true of reformation and repentance in our own homes and culture. This is what the Lord says to Abraham, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. I have chosen Abraham so that he may command his household. Right? so offensive is that statement today. Right? That simple statement that's all throughout Scripture. Of course, mothers are not superfluous. I, I would never say that, right? Um, no one is arguing that. No one is saying that. A book should be written called um, Mommy Tried, right, after Tim's Daddy Tried. And mothers must be pushed to love their children, right, because that is, as you may know, very hard for some mothers to do. Right? In fact, I, I think it could be said that we must pray to God for revival in the hearts of women so that they might love the ways of the Lord that are laid out in Scripture, right? the way of deference, the way of nurture, the way of gentle and quiet spirits which are precious in the sight of God. That's not me, that Scripture says that. Right? But when fathers lead or when fathers are led by the Holy Spirit, which is against their sinful nature and it's, it's against their inherited cowardice from Adam, reformation then comes. Okay, The Spirit will first renovate that man's heart, then that man's home, then the church through his godly love and commitment and example, and then... Even cultures at large will be transformed when the men are reformed. But our culture hates fathers, and, and what do we see? We, we do not see fathers committed to their children. We see that deteriorating to the point of absurdity. Our children are taught to despise their fathers, despise their parents, really, but particularly their fathers. Do we see the... Do we not see the ravages of that in the sexual decadence that is celebrated in our culture? Do we even need uh, a drop more evidence to see the important place of fathers in the coming of the kingdom? Bailey says um, this in the book, and I said it before, true Christianity always restores the bond of love between fathers and children. In other words, true Christianity will make you an oddball in this culture that you live in. You will sit around a table with the father of the house seated at the head of the table, you know, like they did back in pilgrim times. And rather than that man being henpecked and 
his sitting at the head of the table being figurative only, true Christianity will actually give that man the authority of Abraham. And he, out of a deep love for his family, will command his household to keep the ways of the Lord, right? By God's help, by God's blessing. Let me also say this at this point. I've said this many times before. We, when we talk about fatherhood, you have to remember that God has imprinted his fatherhood on this world because he is the first father. That's why fatherhood is so important. He has always been Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right? He is the first father. Ephesians 3 says, I, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family or all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. So when we speak of fatherhood, we're speaking of, of more than just our, our fleshly fathers. We are, we're speaking of authority. We're speaking of fathers everywhere. We're speaking of those who govern us. We're speaking of our church authorities. We're speaking of police officers and, and um and, and firemen, right? And on and on and on we could give examples of those who bear authority over us. They're being fathers. That's it. Thomas Watson. Uh, Thomas Watson, my favorite of the Puritans, uh, wrote an exposition of the Ten Commandments, right? And he says this um, about the commandment to honor our father and mother. He says this, Father is of different kinds, As the political, the ancient, the spiritual, domestic, and the natural. There is the political father. He's the magistrate. He is the father of his country. The scripture call kings fathers. Kings shall be their nursing father. There is the grace, there's um, there's the ancient father who is venerable for old age. If you see an old man fearing God whose grace shines brightest when the sun of his life is setting, oh, honor him as a father by reverencing and imitating him. There are spiritual fathers as pastors and ministers. There is the domestic father, that is the master, uh, the masters. He is the pater familia, the father of the family. Therefore, name and servants call their master father. The centurion calls his servant son. There is the natural father, the father in the flesh. So as we speak of fathers, let the category explode in your minds, right? Fathers are everywhere because God is a father and he has worked his fatherhood, imprinted, implanted that fatherhood on his world. And that's good. It's good. It's beautiful. It is the reflection of God imprinted on his world. You've got some detoxing of your thoughts concerning fathers to do if you've grown up in this country, right? Now, how was John the Baptist, an unmarried man without children, right, like the Son of God, like the Apostle Paul, how was he used by God in this process just before the Son of God entered into the world? How was John the Baptist used to Restore the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. I think in a nutshell, it's very easy. It's by calling out to the people and showing them the necessity of repentance. That's that's all that John the Baptist did as a prophet before the people. Right? 
to call out to them and show them the necessity of repentance. It is the duty of fathers to lovingly, as a fellow sinner, you can't forget that, to call his household, his church, his nation to repentance. It's the prophetic role fathers are to have, and in calling for repentance in a proper way, even the hearts of the children will be turned to their fathers. Right? Children, do you like it when you are disciplined? I see some, some yeses and some noes. Got a no over here? Yeah, my, yeah, my daughter knows enough to, to say yes to my question. Um, do you like it when you're disciplined? Are, you, are some of you angry or disheartened by the fact that you're, you have a father in particular who makes you consider whether what you're doing is right or wrong or good or evil? Right? Um, remember that what he's trying to do is trying to help you discern what honors God and what doesn't honor God. Remember what the book of Hebrews says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. I mean, there may be no more offensive verse in all of scripture in our culture than that one. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Because love today could be defined as the lack of, of judgment and discipline. The lack of calling somebody to repentance, right? Isn't that what the LGBTQ plus community tells us that love is? It's acceptance and inclusion. It's not discipline. Well, the passage goes on. It says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if you're not receiving discipline by your father, you're a bastard in your home. And you don't have your father's heart. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Uh, Right? Eh. Did you respect them? Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I think of all the passages in Scripture that I could put in every one of my sermons, it's probably that one. I mean, somehow I could angle that, those verses into every sermon I write. Because it's meant to encourage people when they're called to repentance. The proof of God's work in your heart will be that you will receive discipline from your fathers and not turn against them when it comes. You're not going to turn against them in anger. You're not going to turn against them in rebellion or a rejection of God's fatherhood entirely. You will respect those who discipline you as, because they care enough to, to even give you attention, right? It's such a joy to have to discipline our kids, right? I, I go home and I crave just what. I mean, how do I get to spend my time this evening? I think I'll spend it disciplining my children. No. Discipline is never pleasant even for the father. It's not pleasant for the children. 
but, but what joy if your father cares about whether you honor God or not. He cares whether you reject God's fatherhood. You will respect them as they care enough for you to call you to honor God and turn from your sins. That was the fatherly work of John the Baptist, right? Christ is coming, repent. Christ is coming, get ready. Christ is coming, repent, Israel. Come back to the Lord, right? Christ is coming, leave off the silly things you love, these idols that you've been worshiping, and cling to God. Right? Just as God's love is shown to us in his attention to our failings and his commitment to our growth, so John the Baptist is, is showing attention to the sins of his generation and calling for his people to turn to Jesus Christ. He's being the father of Israel who prepared the people for the coming of the son of righteousness who would bring healing in his wings. That was... John the Baptist was a father's heart turning to his children. And those who repented and came to Christ, you know what they were? They were the children who had hearts turning toward their father. John the Baptist was the father of Israel who commanded that they follow the way of the Lord. It's clear to me that many fathers do not have hearts committed to their children. That's sad, isn't it? It's one of the saddest things you see is to see a father who could care less about his children. But it's clear to me that many fathers don't have hearts committed to their children, and subsequently their children don't have what? Hearts committed to them. Many fathers exasperate their children, right? They discipline them harshly and not so... They will desire and call out to God for forgiveness of their sins, but, but they only discipline so that their children will stop annoying them. Right? Many fathers do not care at all for their children and are quiet all the time. Just quiet, not engaged, not present. Right? They turn a blind eye to the, their children's sins. It's amazing to me how many fathers can't see the sins of their children, which are obvious when they bring them around me. Right, Even when they bring their children around pagans, the pagans are like, wow, you might want to do something about those children of yours. Can you not hear your children whining? Can you not hear your children whining constantly? Are you going to let them whine, right? Or are you going to, and, and, and in letting them whine, are you going to let them run their lives by trying to manip, manip, manipulate people there to get what they want? Do you think that's going to turn out well for them? Will you be a father to your whining children? Or will you just whine about how difficult it is to discipline your children, right? How tired you are at the end of the day. Look, we're all guilty of these things I'm going to be pointing out. So I'm not just dishing it out. I'm taking the medicine too. Many fathers have such guilty consciences about how they don't do well with their older children that they do not allow themselves to turn over a new leaf and begin to lovingly discipline their younger children, right? The older children you've just utterly failed at, and yet you've got a house full of younger children, and you're like, man, because I screwed up, I just have no moral authority in my home. I'm, I'd be a hypocrite to, to start with my younger children. 
well, that's wrong. And should never, we should never let our failures determine what we do in the future, right? Repent, repent quickly and believe the scriptures and don't worry about whether those older children will think you are a hypocrite. Just admit you are and move on and start today to be a father. Many fathers had terrible fathers themselves, right? And, and that just locks them up. The, the only example that they've had of, of a father was a terrible, perhaps abusive, perhaps unkind, perpetually unkind father. Instead of praying for God to give them a fatherly heart like God's own father, they avoid fatherhood like the plague and think that not being their children's father is enough. Right? I'd rather just not be present than be present like my father was. And so they check out. Many fathers love the world. Right? They love the world. They love the things of the world more than they love their own children. Uh, they overwork because they love money. They buy toys. They have hobbies. I mean, I can't imagine having a hobby. I have six children. If you have six children, you're not allowed to have hobbies. Right? You have children to discipline and take care of and talk to and go down the road holding their hand, talking to them and taking them to breakfast and constantly discipling them. You may have your hobbies when and if your children leave your home. Right? But there are many, many fathers who, who won't give those things up. They, they overwork, they buy toys, they have hobbies that take up all of their extra time when they should just be giving themselves to their children. Right? Many fathers are unwilling to make judgments. They never call anything evil. Right? They're never willing to call out anything that their children do as evil. Unlike John the Baptist, they would never call out Herod's incest, but instead would just say, you know, to each his own. It's weird, you know, but I'm not going to get involved in Herod's incest. That kind of father gives no direction to his children and is in the business of raising successful pagans. Right, and then many other fathers have an an overinflated view of their fatherhood, right? The, the, the father who thinks he has his fatherhood perfectly honed, the hyper-patriarch, right? He, caught, he, he determines, he's so involved, he determines that his daughters are only going to wear ankle-length floral dresses, right? And he's got everything staged out. And what I've found in those houses is there's more sexual abuse there than anywhere else. And it's tragic. So if you have an overinflated sense of your own fatherhood and don't see your own failures, when we come looking in your house, we're going to find a wreck. So in the end, John the Baptist, in John the Baptist, we see a man who is committed to being a father, right, to the nation Israel. And by that Commitment was an example of a father's heart being turned toward the children of Israel. He was engaged, he was observant, he was bold, he was, he was uh, concerned, right? He was, he was with the people. 
And those who came to Christ by the ministry of John the Baptist, they are the example of the children's hearts turning toward the Father. Uh, This is a two-way street, isn't it? It's fathers to children, it's children to fathers, those hearts in both cases. When the Spirit is at work in the hearts of our children, we will see them embracing, loving, not kicking against and despising their fathers. Many children hate their fathers. You grew up hating your father. Right? Many of you did. They find... The children find his meddling annoying, even if it's loving. Right? Can't I just do what I want to do? Can't I just sit on Discord all day long? They've been trained by their own senses rather than by Scripture to hate his discipline. They become fools rejecting the discipline of the Lord. Right? Many children have no respect for their fathers. They think that their fathers are ignorant. They think that their fathers were born yesterday. Right? They think that um, they have no experience in any of the things that they themselves are experiencing. Right? Many children have it as their goal to be the opposite of their fathers. To not give their heart in any way to their fathers. In fact, to guard it against their father. They've, they've observed his dry and religious life and they would rather go the way of the world. Right? In, in essence, they reject their own father's fatherhood to choose other fathers from the world, superstar fathers, right? Superstar fathers that make no demands of them, that do not know them, that are easy to have as fathers, that, but who really understand them, you know? I mean, on and on we could go with examples, right? And we could... We could talk forever about the tension between fathers and sons and fathers and daughters. But, dear brothers, when the Holy Spirit brings revival, when the words of the prophets to repent are heard by the people, when God is at work calling to himself a peculiar people, fathers' hearts are turned toward their children and the children's hearts are turned toward their fathers. Fathers become lovingly committed and diligent to see their children and households follow the ways of the Lord, and children lovingly yield to the standard that their fathers put forward. Lovingly yield to their fathers because they see their heavenly father's provision for their good in their earthly fathers. All of that is a picture of God's, to a picture to us, as God's sons basking in the love and attention of their heavenly father. When God the Father is at work, fatherhood is valued and practiced. Where fatherhood is honored, God the Father is at work. But what what if the opposite is true? What if God is not at work and both his fatherhood and fatherhood in general are not honored? What what then? Romans 1.28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, right? Just as they saw fit to, to not, not acknowledge God, not acknowledge the Father, not acknowledge his authority, what happens? Well, it says that God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanderers, Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, 
disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Do you see what's being said there? Right When people are unwilling to acknowledge God, to honor him as the father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name, what is the result? Depravity of mind that includes disobedience to parents. Disregarding the fatherhood of God means you're going to hate fathers. Reject the fatherhood of God. Reject his authority and the proof of God. Giving you over to your sins will be that you reject earthly fathers and you will become the kind of authority that calls others to reject all authority. It's funny how somebody had to, somebody had to print up those bumper stickers that say reject all authority. And it's like he's commanding us to command others to reject all authority. There's a lot of commands in that. Hearts of the fathers will be turned against the children, and the children will be turned against their fathers. In Malachi, we read this, which Calvin says is, is half promise and half command. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Note the last part, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Whereas the blessings of God is evidenced in fathers' In children's hearts turning toward one another, the curse of God is evidenced in fathers' and children's hearts being turned against one another. Could this not be an explanation for everything terrible about our culture today? The hearts of fathers and children are turned against one another. They're just turned against one another, whether because feminists have denigrated fatherhood Right and deemed it all toxic masculinity, whether because men have happily followed the example of their father Adam and just laid back, whether children have been improperly fathered by their electronic devices, which have become their fathers, whatever, whatever the secondary cause, the primary cause is God's curse toward an unrepentant and rebellious people. In the end, I think what we are seeing played out in our culture by means of many different avenues of worldly wisdom is the result of the ultimate rejection of the Father in rejecting his Son. Psalm 2 captures perfectly the end result of such rebellion. Now, therefore, our kings show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling, do homage to the Son so that he not become angry, and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Right? There's a sense in which all of history boils down to whether or not we as children will have hearts turned toward or turned against our fathers. And there's undoubtedly a sense in which rejecting the Father in heaven by rejecting his Son as our authority and whether people have hearts turned toward him or against him is the very explanation of all of history. I mean all of it, not just this nation, but of the world. Right? Where there is blessing, the fatherhood of God is embraced. Where there is cursing, the fatherhood of God is rejected. This is why I believe scripture says that the creation groans as she awaits the redemption of God's sons. 
when those sons have hearts that are completely devoted to their father. Right? The creation groans under the slashes of God's curses against those whose hearts turn away from him. And the creation longs for the time when all is blessing. Right? When all is rest from this warfare between fathers and sons. When all is fathers and children with hearts fully devoted to one another. All is the father and his redeemed children without any sin causing any dissonance whatsoever between them. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And so what a blessing it will be to us to experience in our own homes, in our own culture in our churches this side of glory what is being worked out in all of history right fathers hearts turn toward their children and children's hearts turn toward their fathers even as the father in heaven turns his heart toward his children and his children turn their hearts toward him right that's glorious And this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 6.18, And I will be a father to you. And you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. It's a very simple statement, isn't it? But it's so filled with peace and joy. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. That's the goal. That's the purpose. That's the end of all of history. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we acknowledge before you that we have spent much time rejecting you. We have spent much time going against your commands and going against what you have deemed to be right and good and true and beautiful. And so, Father, I pray that we would love you by obeying your commands. Father, that we would walk as Jesus walked, that we would yield to your discipline when it comes, that we would, we would rejoice that we have a Father in heaven who cares for us, who is mindful that we are but dust. And Father, I pray that we would, we would honor you, that we as your sons, as your children, would point towards you as the source of all authority, point to you as the source of every good thing, and that our hearts would be turned toward one another. Father, we know that your heart is committed to those that you've given to your son. And we pray that our hearts would be committed until the day when we stand in your presence, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, your Son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.